0: Welcome to Onscripts Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at OnScript.Study/BiblicalWorld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks for tuning in at the Biblical World Podcast. We are focused on studying and understanding the historical context of the Bible the geography, culture, archaeology, texts, history, all of that, and how it impacts our understanding of Scripture. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you would like to uh, support what we're doing, you can go to OnScriptStudy forward slash donate if you'd like to give regularly and be in the running for occasional book giveaways and things like that. Um, Otherwise, we just appreciate you tuning in and sharing the Word with others. Thanks a lot and enjoy. Hello and welcome back, Biblical World listeners. My name is Amy Bailo and I'll be your host today. This episode, we're kicking off a new series called New Perspectives in the Bible on the Bible and Nature. And today's guest has recently written a fantastic book that brings together several areas of scholarship to look at how the ancient Israelites related to the natural world around them And to see what that might suggest about how we relate to the world around us. So today's guest uh, interviewee is uh, Ron Simpkins from Creighton University, where he is the professor of Hebrew Bible and Near Eastern studies in the theology department. He has also been the director of the Kripke Center for the Study of Religion and Society from its inception uh, and for more than 20 years. And he's the founding editor of the Journal of Religion and Society. Ron has published broadly on creation, political economy, gender, and the environment. And so we're very happy to have him here today to talk about his most recent book, Creation and Ecology, The Political Economy of Ancient Israel and the Environmental Crisis. Um, so glad to have you, Ron.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: All right. Um, So I'm just going to start off with a very... Big question for you. Okay. Um, so your book integrates a lot of areas of study. Um, so you have a lot in there about political economy, creation stories, um, some stuff on gender, and of course a lot on environmental studies, as well as you know biblical studies, bringing in some classic methods and and textual readings there. Um, so can you tell us? a little about your project uh, just introduce us to what it is you're doing and uh, tell us how all these things kind of came together in your mind.
1: Uh, the more I have uh, kind of worked through things over the years, uh, the more I've kind of adopted uh, what is what is typically known as political economy uh, and that is in the anthropological, Disciplines, rather than the economic disciplines, uh, political economy in, in economics is uh, of a different sort, and uh, uh, don't really want to address that. But political economy in the in the anthropology realm uh, is kind of rooted in the Mark, Marxian tradition and is the most inclusive uh, thing that I could ever find. It tries to basically tie everything apart the in terms of the uh, the culture, the society, the the religious practices, uh, uh, with their political system and their economic practices into some kind of a meaningful whole. And so I've, I've worked in all of these areas over the years, and I finally said, you know, I need to kind of pull it all together into one large statement that says this is how we can understand the religion and their social practices, as well as their material world in which they live. Uh, and how this all can make sense in a kind of a singular interpretation.
0: Right. And so um, you start off talking a lot about um, the book of Genesis, particularly the Garden of Eden is your launching point for this project. Um, so can you tell us why you decided to go there and why you decided to look at things like um, gender and the household for starters? Sure.
1: Well, partly uh it's because I do always like creation stories. Uh, I I've, I've kind of uh, been steeped in that and I particularly like the Yahweh story. The second story, the the priestly one doesn't really do much for me to be honest. <laughs> uh it, it seems more liturgical than anything, so I've I've never really spent uh, a lot of time just uh pondering it. But but actually it's the it's the Yahwist uh myth that uh really resonates because it's a myth that is all about uh economy uh humans are created to work uh and uh, what happens in the unfolding of the myth is about what that work is going to be like so it was a it was a natural place to start uh and it also kind of gets at being a myth it gets at some of the big ideas uh that I want to get at and part of the the whole kind of nexus of this is a, is what i would argue is a uh we have to kind of get at this understanding between nature and society and that relationship uh is understood in different ways uh, by different kind of scholarly groups and some ways i think are helpful and other ways are not helpful uh and i so i kind of wanted to make a larger statement about this relationship between nature and society uh and that becomes, in many ways, kind of the underlying theme that runs throughout the the whole book,
0: right? And uh, just um, so those who haven't read the book, what is your statement about the relationship between Bible Majority and ecology? Society? Yes, oh, okay.
1: <laughs> or all of it, all of it. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, that's uh, I don't, I don't know if I could actually summarize it in a statement. That's <laughs> that's the that's the problem. It's a uh, it's a very complex, uh kind of work, and that has many statements within it, um, I would, I guess my, my ultimate statement would be that uh, society is a human product that comes out of and remains part of the natural world, uh, and what happens in society has permutations in the natural world as well as transforming society. And in the process of doing all of this, we have uh, corrupted both society and the natural world through climate change. Uh, and that's kind of where I go with uh, with climate change. So that's kind of a big picture looking at it from 30,000 feet. Uh, so it doesn't get to the specifics and those we can talk about. But uh, that's kind of where I would the, the overall framework, I guess.
0: Right. And so... Um- One question I would, I guess I would have, I mean, I have a million questions for you. We've talked about some of these over the years. Yeah, sure. Um, Is how, how does one connect Bible to climate change in a healthy way? Um, You mentioned in your book that there are quite a few obstacles to that. Um, So maybe if you could talk to some of those obstacles and, and talk about how you've personally worked through some of them.
1: Yeah, see, this is this is part of why the book is so complex. I think is because uh, there is no simple way to connect uh, the Bible with climate change. If for no other reason that the ancients, uh, the the writers of the Bible, could never imagine such a reality that that humans could engage in that would actually uh, lead to their own demise. I say that on the one hand. On the other hand, they also have that kind of thinking in their covenant theology, where uh, where if they sin, God is going to bring the uh, curses on them. And those curses can include uh, drought and pestilence and sterility and death. And perhaps mm-hmm. you could understand climate change in that context. Um, I don't think we would want to understand climate change if you will, so simplistically that it's a direct result of human sin. And that's where it starts to become more complex. Um, What I've had problems with in the past is that when climate change is simply added on to a whole series of uh, harmful human actions towards the environment, Mm -hmm. that is, uh, we might think of creation care, as something that comes out of the biblical tradition, or stewardship comes out of the biblical tradition, that we need to uh, live in the natural world and be responsible and respectful of the natural world and and foster its well-being. And climate change is just one of these many kinds of ways in which we we failed at that. Uh, and you might say that the Bible can speak to that kind of aspect. And I and I find that uh, unfortunate because I think it is. far too simplistic and too incomplete. It doesn't really address Mm -hmm. the the primary problems that cause climate change, which are not actually fossil fuels. (laughs) They're simply the means by which we produce climate change. Um, And so because it doesn't really address the primary problems with climate change, I don't think it's ultimately very helpful.
0: Right. And what do you... um... I know this because I've read your book. But what do you think are the the primary
1: problems? What's the underlying? Well, the primary problem I would argue uh, is twofold. One is that we we need energy to um, to live, and uh, we've throughout most of human history we've we've relied largely on uh, energy produced from plants. We've relied on energy that's produced from animal and muscle. Uh, animal and human muscle, which is ultimately relying on plants. Um, we've we've only secondarily used energy from wind and water, uh, but most of it has been kind of plant-based uh, energy. Until the modern era, well, I call the modern era begin around 1800. <laughs> uh, beginning in the modern era, we found this new source of energy, which we call fossil fuels, which is essentially still plant energy uh, that's been... Uh, solar energy that's been uh uh harnessed away uh through millions of years of uh of, you know kind of compaction but in any case uh it's that it's that energy that's allowed us to if you will flourish in a, in a certain sort of way so on the one hand we have this quest for energy we find this new source of energy which has been very helpful to us on the other hand it's kind of the the economic systems that have driven the energy use And largely throughout most of human history, the economic systems were sufficient for maintaining human uh, sustainability without without pushing us too far. We were never able to get into a growth cycle uh, other than natural growth. We were never able to... uh, m- m- Harness enough energy so that we could, as a as a human society, individuals, yes, but not as a human society, we're able to, g- to get sustained per capita growth. Uh, but fossil fuels have enabled us to do this, and it really is the the kind of the function of capitalism, which is really structured around growth that is able that has enabled us to produce so much and to raise our standard of living to such high levels, all of things which we say is the benefits of growth. But the product of that is, of course, we've had to burn an enormous amount of fossil fuels to do that, which has produced climate change. And if we don't understand the connection between uh, the growth imperative that we have in our economy today, and the necessity of fossil fuels to supply the, the power for that growth, we really don't understand the problem that climate change would pose.
0: Right, and so it's um, kind of an issue of it's a systemic issue, right? It's not just yes, it is moving to an, moving to an electric car or you know taking right, right cloth paper, you know cloth bags to the grocery store instead of plastic. Um, and here in Colorado, we just passed a plastic bag tax. Actually, where like if you go to the grocery store and you forget your bags, you have to pay ten cents per plastic bag. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, which has has uh, wonderfully changed people's behavior very quickly. Sure. Sure. Um, so, so I do recommend things like that, but I mean, it's a drop in the bucket at this point. Right. And so
1: it, well, it's, it's, it's good in the sense that, uh, yeah, we don't want plastic bags to be, uh, polluting, polluting in the trees. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I remember driving through uh, a middle Eastern country and it, people would joke that the pla- the black plastic bag was their national flower. <laughs> because you could see it everywhere stuck on things there's these small little bags that you'd pick up everywhere. Um, so yeah we don't want that uh, and that's good but in the end that doesn't address really the problems that we're facing. Um, right it, it does good things elsewhere but of course we have lots of problems but it doesn't really efface the uh, the climate change problem
0: right and so so a major part of your project is then to see what alternatives we might yes. have um and so a large part of your project in creation and ecology is to look at the various um, economies that Israel had throughout its history. And so you look at the monarchy, you look at kind of the um, exilic and then of course focusing on um, mostly in the monarchy and then the post-exilic period under Persia uh, and and tie those into the creation stories that kind of fit those different time periods yeah and so um, yeah I had never read such work, um, and so it was really interesting to do that because um, you know most of us don't think of the Bible as portraying a certain economy. Right, right. Um, that's just kind of not how we're trained to read it. And so it was a really interesting read that way. But in doing that, you kind of show us um, alternatives of how to live, right, of how to live in an economy that is completely cognizant of the fact that it's reliant on the natural world. Right. Um, you know, ancient Israel being an agrarian agricultural community. Um, and really until, like you said, the 1800s, the world generally operated that way. And so it really like we're the, we're the odd That's correct. Ones, yes. Right. Cause, cause it's, you know, since the industrial revolution and urbanization, like things have changed. Um, and so what, what connection do you want us to make to that material from the Hebrew Bible? Um, why, why did you feel like that was the route to go?
1: That's, you know, that's complicated. Uh, and it, this is, again, this, this difficulty of kind of connecting the Bible to the modern connection because modern climate change, because in many ways I could have drawn upon any ancient society, uh, any pre-modern society, and had some of the same kinds of conclusions um, because we're the ones that are really out of sync with human history. Uh, and it largely has to do with the fact that we, instead of relying on natural, sustainable uh, sources of energy, we have drawn down this once-in-a-lifetime sequestered source, which is fossil fuels. You know, it can't be replenished. It's it's going to run out, and we'll we'll have no more, and we'll have to move on after that, in any case. But in the process, so we're the we're the odd ones out. But of course, drawing on the biblical tradition is makes sense in in a in a context of Western civilization where the biblical tradition has been quite influential. And of course, with so many Christians and Jews who see this as sacred scripture, uh, there's all that kind of intrinsic value of these texts. So in many ways, it became natural to focus on ancient Israel uh, because not only do we have, if you will, the material reality of what their society was like, we have all this biblical text that gives us religion of what it's like to live in such a society uh and if we if we don't if we understand the nature of their their political economy the biblical tradition is just so much more alive because that's that tradition comes out of this society uh and it speaks to that society uh, Uh, Why, for instance, can uh, does do the laws tell us that uh, we should allow people to uh, glean grapes and olives and uh, grain from our fields? We shouldn't harvest everything. Uh, You know, that's not a that's not a good maximization of profit (laughs) to allow (laughs) this stuff to lay behind. But they're dealing with a world in which there is no economic growth and you make provisions accordingly. This is why we have. Uh, no interest. This is why we have uh, uh, forgiveness of debts every seven years, or in the priestly account, returning to land every 50 years, and the forgiveness of debts every seven years. Uh, It's not because they were somehow enlightened in a way that nobody else was. We can find similar kinds of things elsewhere, but it's because they lived in a very different society from us and had different concerns. And many times, in many ways, those concerns need to be more our concerns than what we're living in because ours is the fake it's the it's the uh a oh, fake is not the right word but it, it certainly is a heavily constructed economy based on simply that we have this source of energy that uh is going to go away eventually and it's harmful now that we have it
0: right and so so kind of what i'm hearing is um that you see in some of the ancient societies, that there's more of a sense of that of things being finite. Yes,
1: uh, limited would be a good term. Uh, everything they had was limited, uh, and they recognized the limits. Where we tend to think in terms of unlimited economy can always grow. There's always substitutes. If we run out of one resource, we can find a substitute. It's unlimited. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever are in a modern economics class, this is all you hear. <laughs> Is that uh, the economy has all these unlimits that we can uh, exploit?
0: Right, and if you come up across a limitation,
1: it's your fault, right? <laughs> because I suppose you didn't so. Think
0: outside the box, or you didn't like work hard enough, or
1: whatever it yeah. is. You and know? the market will eventually figure a way around it,
0: right? It'll create some new thing. <laughs> that's right. Uh, which is you know kind of in the midst of what's happening now with you know various sectors of the job market and stuff. It's like well, we just recreate create them, right? Like that's right. Uh, when they talk about job creation, it's like well. Did it come out of nowhere? Like, um, you know, everything comes from somewhere. Yeah. Um, but that I think that difference is is really helpful. And I think for for people who are interested in Bible, again, you you know, you mentioned it's scripture for literally like billions of people around the world, and so it's a, a good place to start because I think one of the problems we're running into, and and you talk about this quite extensively in either your introduction or chapter one, is that there are certain understandings of the Bible that have been kind of either lost or not found yet. Um, and I think this moment is kind of forcing one of those moments where we have to figure out how the Bible and religion relate to this new problem. Right. Right. Um, and you're, you know, you're taking an interesting path with this because, uh, and, and you and I have talked about this, uh, Elsewhere, that um, a lot of times when you read books on the Bible and um, kind of environmental responsibility, they all kind of have the same message, right? It's, um, you know, God cares for creation. We're part of creation. We should love creation. And that's kind of the summary, right? You can summarize a lot of books and articles that way.
1: Um,
0: But yours is a very different path because um, you talk about we basically need a new order. Yeah. things Um, we need to be more challenged by the text than just personal responsibility that's correct and um what kind what so we talked about genesis 2 and 3 um like what other texts come to bear on this are there any other specific texts that are kind of um keystone pieces i think yeah
1: i think the, the basic sense of uh the covenant uh is is important simply because it it does have that uh, cause and effect relationship. I mean, this is this is how they understood the world. They saw God permeating the whole natural world. Uh, God is active in everything that they experience, so that their labor is mediated through their relationship with God. <laughs> so right. they, they just can't simply. I'm just going to go out and plow my fields, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do, and uh, I'll produce good things because I'm a good farmer. The covenant sets it up with, yes, but you also have to worship God. You have to follow Yahweh, and if you don't follow Yahweh in the right ways, then it's not going to work that way. Uh, it's It really is the relationship with God that so, if you will, oversees every interaction they have in their society. Uh, and I And I think that's significant. It's a way of of bringing humility to humans, <laughs> that, you know, we're not the ones in control here, that the earth is, is bigger than us. Uh And I, of course, uh I am also a believer and think that God is present everywhere. And uh, I can, I can resonate uh, with this idea that one also needs to be a, a follower of God. But I think even for those who, who, don't and would just see that as something that the ancient israelites did and maybe we've outgrown that or something there's still this idea that we are not the final authors of our faith that there is something larger in this world and if it's uh if it's anything other than god it would be nature uh the natural world always wins uh and uh, we are not living in accord with such uh such rules of the natural world, and uh, we we can't get out of this. So I don't see I don't see a technological fix as a way of doing this, for instance, because uh, it just I just don't think it'll work. For one, I have a little bit more humility than that,
0: right? And it also would just perpetuate the problem as well, right? And so
1: yes, in many ways, uh, it. I mean, th- this is the problem with our politics: is our politics. Now, you don't find this if you if you if you read broadly, you find lots of people who would be arguing similar things to what I'm arguing from different perspectives. But if you just listen to our politics, it's uh, let's don't change the basic structures of our society. Let's just fix this one little problem with carbon dioxide. So we're going to we're going to put incentives for uh, for electric vehicles. We want all vehicles to be electric by a certain date with no No conception that the electric vehicle isn't produced out of nothing. (laughs) Right. That it takes an enormous amount of mining to get uh, the minerals that are used in the electric vehicle. It takes an enormous amount of fossil fuels to not only do the mining, but to produce the steel and, and all the other products that go into these vehicles, as well as it takes an enormous amount of fossil fuels to ultimately reconvert all this stuff back into something else that can be used. It's it it's like, well, let's don't change the capitalist system. Let's just tweak it. And we'll tweak it around fossil fuels. Uh, The same is to be said about most renewable energies. I mean, renewable energies can't reproduce themselves. They need fossil fuels to produce them. They need mining to produce them. Um, And if we think that we can just kind of put all this renewable energy out there, that is windmills and solar panels, uh, as well as electric vehicles, we're going to transform the problem from one of kind of traditional forms of burning fossil fuel to other forms of burning fossil fuel uh, that's hidden, not so overt. And we'll kind of think it's all taken care of, but it's not. And we, we won't solve the problem at all.
0: Yeah. And I think it's obviously very worthy to think through what the alternatives are, yes. right? And, and, to, um, and to see like the, you know, even though... And, and you make this point very clearly, and I'm glad you do. Like, this, you don't have a romanticism for like re enlivening the system of ancient Israel. No, no. no. Right. Um, but <laughs> it's because we can't go back, right? right? right. Like, things are too complex and we're too globalized and, you know, on and on. Um, but it is important to think about alternatives yeah. and to maybe see what we can learn from them. Right. Um, because, right. you know, like we mentioned, there is an awareness of limitedness. Um, that we just don't seem to have anymore, yeah. and there is uh, a, like a lot of values there that I think yeah. are important yeah. to carry forward, and some of which we've you know, probably lost. Um, we, you know, don't even understand our, our earthiness anymore, um, you know, and unless you happen to be a gardener or an avid houseplant collector or something like that, like you probably don't ever t- really touch dirt. Yeah. Yeah. And when you do, you wash it off as soon as possible. And so to, right. to start in the Garden of Eden, where Adam is basically an earth creature, you know, and some people even translate uh, Adam as earthling. Right, right, right. I'm sure you've seen that. Um, it's just, it's a very different... Or,
1: or human from the humus.
0: Right, right. And not not from humus, but from humus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's a very different way of conceptualizing even the body, Right, And so you you do have a chapter on the body and um, another chapter, you actually start off with discussions of gender yeah. um, and Adam being like basically born from the womb of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, Yahweh kind of ushering that process in um, and then his relationship to Eve. And so I'm glad you start in that very earthy place because I think that's part of what we need to go back to as a value right. to understand right. like our, our dirtness.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would certainly uh, agree, and I, I, I don't think we can actually kind of replicate the ancient Israelite economy, nor would we really want to, um, <laughs> as, as one person joked about my book. I don't think it was a joke. I think they actually were a little serious, but I think they misread it, said, what do you want us to go back to the Stone Age or the Iron Age? And uh, Iron Age would be more appropriate than the Stone Age, but the Iron Age, uh, uh, not completely, No. But I do think we, that what's at stake really is what we call Western civilization. And it's mm-hmm. it's a problem with Western civilization that we're dealing with. And what I do think we need to do is, is unwind it if we can. Uh, and some of this means we need to reverse the trajectory of urbanization and move back towards a more ruralization. We need to get people back on the land, working the land uh, and producing more self-sufficiently Uh, in small communities uh, that are dotting the land rather than uh, industrial agriculture, which is not only destroying the earth, uh, but is not doing much for the farmers either. (laughs) Um, So we we need to unwind some of those things. We need to start to think about local communities that are self-sustaining, more sufficient. I use the word subsistence throughout and And uh, there are now modern subsistence movements, which give the word subsistence, if you will, a more positive tone than, you know, when I grew up thinking of subsistence and working in uh, the biblical tradition early on with subsistence, subsistence was always kind of eking out in existence, just barely surviving. Uh, And that's really not the way it's used anymore in terms of uh, subsistence movements. It's more of a kind of a self-sufficiency, being able to provide all the needs that one has for one's self and community without having to, uh, if you will, go too far, um, without having to worry about surpluses and and those kinds of things. So it's it's a much more positive term, and we need to start to think about how can we do some of those things, get people back into their uh, ground. Some of it means uh, changing our ways of life, uh, changing our city planning, changing our uh, suburbanization, (laughs) Uh, trying to uh re, re-village these suburban areas, uh, so that they're actually communities that have access to land and that can actually use the land for their own sufficiency rather than simply being parasitical on a landscape. Um, so a lot of these things I think are important, and I think you're right. We We, there is a there is kind of a lack of, and this is just what's happened over time, we've just become alienated from the very ground that kind of provides life for us. Uh, and that's just unfortunate. And we have to kind of reclaim some of that.
0: Yeah. And there's been some, um, critique as well of not, not just the Bible, but of, um, I guess it would be certain interpretations of the Bible, especially the, the priestly creation story in Genesis Uh one. Um, and, and some people point to, um, a, a lot of people understand this as a command, but I think it's important to understand that in the context of the, the story, it's actually called a, a blessing, blessing. That's right. when yeah, when when God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the creatures. Um, some people point to that and say, aha, like there's the problem, right? It's inherent in the Bible, it's yeah. inherent in, in Christianity and Judaism. Um, what do you do with that in in your project? How do you receive that criticism?
1: Yeah, I I note that this criticism is is as well. It's 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 twofold. On the one hand, it's just criticism has been passed down. Uh, it's become widely public. I was reading the book just the other day. Uh, it's called Post Growth Living. It's a wonderful book by uh, by Kate Soper, and in passing, she refers to kind of the biblical mandates in a negative way, which has nothing mm-hmm. to do with their argument whatsoever, but it's just right. enough to cast dispersions. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, you don't really know what you're talking about. You know, this is kind of a thing. <laughs> You've just kind of used it uh, as a, as, as kind of a, a cultural note, if, if anything. Right. Uh So there are those, and then there are, on the other hand, there are those I think who who see the biblical tradition as reflecting this kind of thinking, and that's good. Uh, mm-hmm. And they they can feel empowered by this kind of thinking. Um, in many ways, I try to unmask it for what it is. I mean, we're talking about uh, an ancient people who are struggling to subsist in their land and if this comes from Babylon, these are people who have even been exiled from their land right and and don't have any uh, uh, real contact, don't have any power to do anything. And this is a text that says no, you do have some power. You do have some ability to actually make your existence uh, sustainable by by subduing the land, which I think means no more than tilling it and sowing seed and growing crops uh it's certainly not mining it for all it's worth uh (laughs) and that you have dominion over the animals which in in the very context tells us it doesn't mean you can eat them it just means that well it means that you can uh put them in pens and you can shave their hair for wool uh i'm not exactly sure what's involved but it doesn't mean killing them and eating them
0: (laughs) right and it's uh it's hard to get away from that like royal language there right and so um even though those are appropriate translations, like the picture that it gives there of like, how does it, what does it mean to be a, a a royal figure in the image of God? Right. right? What does it mean to be a leader in the image of God? And if Genesis one is all you're going off of, because that's the first book, you know, that's the first chapter of the book. It's like at that point, God's pretty, pretty good. He's pretty relaxed. Yeah. Right. Like he's doing a lot of creative, positive things. And, um, and then once you get into the the verses that come after that, that pretty much nobody reads, um, you know, it talks about the the ideal of eating, uh, what is it, like seed-bearing plants. Yeah, seed-bearing plants. Being, you
1: have all the seed-bearing plants. That's right. Right.
0: And that's all humans are allowed to eat in that text. And so...
1: At least until the flood. That's right. Yeah. Right.
0: Right. And so, like, what image of dominion is that? Yeah. Right? And and so it's very different than that the
1: harsh reading of... And, and particularly dominion, if you look in the biblical tradition... Everywhere in the biblical tradition, except for just a few rare texts, wild animals are always viewed as a threat outside of, if you will, the creation, outside of human civilization, uh, used by God as a, as a punishment. Humans never have dominion over wild animals. Right. Which, which lets me know that this text is more wishful thinking. It's more utopian um, than it is actual. Uh, and again, it, it probably speaks, I think, to a community that feels bombarded on all sides, having you know, been exiled and now living in a foreign land and having a hard time making existence, uh, getting their existence out of it all. And uh, this perhaps provides hope that, yeah, we, we are distinctive from other animals. And I do think that is mm-hmm. uh, a message I'll fight for, that, that humans are distinctive. Uh, we just simply can't be absorbed into everything that is, we have no, it, 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 we're not all of a, one of a kind. Um, but, but yeah, it's not, I don't think, be, I think any, any, intro, any, any, in, uh, if I can not get my tongue tied, any Israelite who was told that this gives us carte blanche uses of the of the natural world, I think would be horrified. <laughs> <laughs> I I think they would kind of wonder, what are you talking about? You know, this is just our basic, yeah. this is just telling us we can survive. Ultimately we can, we can farm, right. we can, uh, we can take care of animals, domestic animals. Uh, uh, tells us, I think little more than that.
0: Yeah. I always have to wonder about those people who first, uh, domesticated the bull, like, Oh Yeah. Yeah. God bless y'all, but that's not me. <laughs> uh, it, 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 this whole thing brings up to me, I can't help but think of the end of Job, which is basically four chapters of of you know, the deity going off on Job, saying like, do you understand the wild? Like,
1: right, right. And humans obviously
0: don't. <laughs> you understand zero, right? And, and that puts him in his place. Yeah. Like the recognition of what he doesn't know and what he can't control puts him in his place. Right. Whereas I think... In the modern world, it's like, well, how can I solve that problem? Yeah. Right. Yeah. How can I get control? And I'm currently um reading a collection of essays, I forget the author's name, um, but it's called The Anthropocene Reviewed. Uh-huh. Um, and it's it's kind of fun, but it's very thoughtful. And he makes the point a couple of times that, you know, even wild animals that we never see, like, were their biggest threat. Um, so he, he says, you know, specifically about you know, polar bears and, and penguins and stuff.
1: Certainly in our world today, that's true, yeah. Right,
0: and so the the tables have turned, and so... Um, and
1: most are also aware of that in the sense that they've they had human contact and and are uh, standoffish, shy, don't want to be around humans because of these things, yeah.
0: Right, right, and um, you sort of make, well, not sort of, you do make this point in your book that the Bible, even even geologically... Now we are in what's called the Anthropocene, which basically means that humans are impacting the geological record, um, which even, you know, the previous owner of my house is proof of that because we're constantly finding weird stuff, um, semi-buried in the backyard. (laughs) Um, Nothing criminal, just like (laughs) screws and popsicle wrappers and, you know, things from do-it-yourself projects.
1: When you you start finding bones, let me know. Yeah, well, I found a dead cat,
0: so that was also fun. Or uh, More specifically, my dogs found it. Um <laughs> but um so we're we're in a completely not completely different age but we are in a different geological age. We are now in well into the yeah. industrial revolution. And um these the stories and and specifically the cosmologies that you talk about um in the Bible are are mm-hmm. really from that other age. And so there's a question that kind of looms in your book and you touch on it throughout kind of gently is that what can we then do with these stories? And so how I guess the question is like how relevant are these old cosmologies? Um, I'm I'm thinking now specifically things like uh, Psalm one uh, was it Psalm 74 that has Yahweh um, taking care of Leviathan, right? You also see that in the end of job Um
1: yeah. OK. Yeah. You know, I was thinking 104. He also kind of takes care of Leviathan as well. And uh, that's, that's a more, more positive. Right.
0: Well, there's a lot of Leviathan stuff. Right. There's the, yes, there's the yes, smashing yes. his head and then there's the taking care yeah. of him. Right. Um, but we have all these kind of different ideas in the Bible. And I think when we think of creation stories, we think of Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2 and 3. Yeah. And that's kind of it. Um, but you have them scattered throughout, and you have even Proverbs eight with Lady Wisdom talking about being at Yahweh's feet um, right. while He creates. Right. Um, so I guess my question is: you know, we're in a different age, and people have for a long time been asking about the relevance of the Bible, right, for modern issues. And so, um, what, like, what do you see there from your experience with this?
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of an interesting turn. I I had a. I suppose you call it an inspiration on that idea. Uh, before I wrote, started writing the book, and I, so I wrote something that I incorporated into the book, um, and, and and it really had to do with some of my work on gender. Because in with you when you work on gender in the Bible, I'm not a person who wants to uh, rehabilitate the Bible. I want to understand what gender was like, and then I can just simply excuse it as in many ways that's a different culture. I don't think it's normative. Uh, we can about gender differently in our society uh recognizing that things change culturally and socially um well if if we do if we have transitioned to the anthropocene uh and I, I do spend have a whole chapter that kind of just deals with the the science and the consequences of of what all that means then the question does comes is well what is this holocene text doing in relationship to the Anthropocene, does it translate into a new period? Uh, and the the issue that I found pro- most problematic was there's a number of texts in the Bible, and these are creation texts that that kind of they give the impression that humans are not so powerful, and that God is in control of the creation. Uh, so you have that in mm-hmm. Psalm 104, for instance, where humans are just like the animals getting fed by God and doing their labors and all these other wild animals that are mentioned are, are all under God's provisioning and it's God who's in control of all of creation. Uh, you find this in uh, Psalm 65, where you have God who waters the earth, for instance, and you have it in Psalm 1, I mean, in Genesis mm-hmm. 1, where God creates a very good orderly world. Uh, And my thought is perhaps, perhaps in the Anthropocene, the very nature of our understanding of the world needs to change to recognize that it's not such a good orderly world any longer. And it's not that way because of God, it's not that way because of humans, (laughs) because of what we have done. We have, if you will, knocked it off its trajectory into something else. And we haven't yet, I think we're in a period of transition. I wouldn't say we're fully in the, we're not fully in the Anthropocene because I don't think the earth is settled into anything new, but we're clearly trans, we've clearly transitioned out of the Holocene into something new that has yet to be, yet to be worked out. Is it going to be a hotter world? Is it going to be a colder world? Is it going to be just a much more Mm -hmm. world in flux? We don't know yet until this all gets worked out. Uh, But it does tell us that, that humans have a much greater now as a people, not as a uh, not as individuals, but as a as a species, has a much greater role in the fate of what has happened, uh, and so that does make you wonder if if such texts that talk about God creating a good world and and uh, that God is providing and taking care of all the humans and animals, if if those kind of texts are. Well, maybe just not relevant as much, or I like to liken it to uh, uh, to Newtonian physics versus Einstein physics, relativity. Uh, with Newtonian physics, that makes a lot of sense, and we can figure out a lot of things about the world uh, with Newtonian physics. We we can't really do space travel with Newtonian physics. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, the world is more complicated, and it takes another understanding, and that's the relativity. Uh, that Einstein introduced uh, that we need to use to understand uh, the physics at a more sophisticated level. And uh, I, w- I would say that, you know, yeah, Genesis 1, Psalm 104 makes sense for the person who, if you will, is out in their farm trying to make, you know, trying to get a sense of how they fit into this world. It makes sense for us on an individual level but it doesn't, it doesn't help us when we face issues of climate change. Um, and that's, that's the bigger issue. And there we need a more complex understanding. And I think that complexity is in, in the always uh, the creation myth. Hmm. I think it's also there in many of the kind of the mythic tales that reflect what I call the conflict myth, uh, this battle of God against uh, some kind of aquatic monster, whether it be Leviathan, Rahab, or whether it's just the waters. Or whether it's historicized even to human (laughs) enemies it's the same kind of basic mythic pattern Um, and i think that makes sense all of these make sense in terms of climate change because that often puts the burden on humans humans are the ones who have disrupted things Uh, humans are the ones that pose the threat to creation uh humans are the ones who have disobeyed god and the like so uh because it puts the burden on humans i think that those texts kind of continue to resonate into this uh, Anthropocene period.
0: And um, so that brings me to a question about the land itself then and the kind of the experience of the the geography even of Israel. And so I I know that you've traveled extensively within Israel working on the Virtual World Project, um, which is available online. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it takes you on tours of archeological sites and does like 360 views. Um, it's a really cool website, so you can, you know, just Google Virtual World Project and you'll find it. Um, how how has that work of traveling extensively, going to sites, um, you know, built and natural, informed your understanding of of ancient Israelite life?
1: I, I would say it it has turned me towards the material. Um, so I, hmm. I, I would like to think that I work primarily as a historical materialist now. Um, recognizing uh, that things come out of uh, the material rather than uh, simply out of one's head de novo, uh, and it's historical. in as much as we things change uh, and progress or degress, so they change over time. Um, and having you know living you know living there, experiencing. Uh, the world there and seeing the seeing houses and villages both from the from the neolithic period all the way to many sophisticated kind of roman complexes and islamic complexes that you can run across uh you you get a sense of you get a better sense of the material life that people lived in Uh, of course a lot of this has to be supplemented with uh further research in terms of the archaeology, what are they, you know, because a lot of that stuff is no longer there. Hmm. But what kind of uh, uh, toolkits are they using? What kind of uh, uh, utensils and dishes, uh, storage vessels are they using? And how did they build their houses? Uh, You know, so much is incomplete from just, if you will, a a tourist perspective on the archaeology. So you need to fill that in. But all of that has contributed to to help ent- uh, me to better understand that these texts don't uh, don't just simply emerge out of the mind, uh, they emerge out of a out of mm-hmm. a historical reality of people actually engaging in the world around them, the society and nature uh, uh, interface uh, through their labors, through their efforts, um, and 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 that's that's this kind of archaeology really just turned me to the material side. Uh, to say that this is critical—that's why I talk about uh, the Yahwist creation myth coming out of these experiences of of farmers uh, living, you know, and what all that entails, uh, and and the like—that this is, uh, we we never would have produced these in the modern era. <laughs> we would have had a very different <laughs> conception, just because of our own material experiences are very different. Uh, but their experiences were such that this is this makes sense of their experiences. Uh, And it expresses their values in these experiences um, that are in many ways long lost to us. uh, Although analogously, we can find some similar experiences today, but uh, we need to kind of cultivate more of that because that's more sustainable.
0: Right. And it makes me um, think. So an exercise back when I was teaching in person that I used to do with my students uh, is to kind of walk them through either an ancient israelite house or temple yeah yeah and and one of the things that you have to emphasize when you do that is that everything was made out of stone and mud yeah yeah and so so even when you go inside like if we go inside today it's it's very different than being outside whereas then if you went inside it would it would it would smell like earth right because that's what it was you were just going into basically a man-made cave yeah. right because it was just stone and dirt and and
1: it gives a whole different perspective it's luxury
0: right right and uh and and that was luxury back yeah, then right uh, and um so yeah um there used to be a running joke in in our household that if if things get real bad i know how to make a stone and mud brick house and go. we'll be <sighs> fine right um we'll be fine uh, as long as you know how to do that yeah
1: no housing was never a problem you know, for the agents. It's not like they had to take out mortgages and all this kind of stuff, you know, it was, uh, it was easy. You know, you wanted a better house than others, but nevertheless, it wasn't, it wasn't a problem. Right. You
0: could just make it like with what's laying around and what's laying around. Um, yeah. You have to maintain it though. That's the problem. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, that you do.
0: Not easy. Um, okay. So we're getting, uh, toward the last few minutes or so. And so I want to kind of get toward the end of your book Okay, and, and, um, So, in the end of the book, you bring in the language of sin, of lamentation, of repentance as helpful ways of um, what has been done and maybe what needs to be done. Um, And I was thinking of this in light of some of the research that I did on um, eco psychology, which talks about, which uses the same language. um, Interestingly enough, even though it tries to distance itself from religion, it can't help but talk about repentance and, and, you know, guilt and shame and all this kind of stuff. And I really, I really think that humans have had mixed feelings about our relationship to nature for quite some time. Um, I don't think it's a modern thing to feel guilty for having to plow the land and, you know, some of the things that, um, relationships we have to animals and things. And so I think this has been a struggle for quite some time. Um, but I was wondering if you could comment on like what, What do you, I guess, maybe hope for or foresee coming in terms of, like, how can religion general, and then obviously the Bible specifically, like, how might those be re-envisioned? Or um, I don't know what language I'm looking for, but like, how might they be allies uh, in moving forward?
1: Yeah. Well, I think when it comes down to it, we have a a model, if you will, um, a model in our heads that we've inherited as members of Western civilization, in terms of what a good life is all about, uh, and it's a model of affluence. It's a model of that, that. It's it's basically the capitalist dream, and it comes with all kinds of things like you know we growth is expected of us, uh, a certain amount of affluence is expected. We expect the, our children to do better than us. To have more income mm-hmm. ultimately than us, a higher standard of we all expect everything to progress in certain sorts of ways. Um, we we can't address climate change with this mental model that we have. Uh, it needs we need mm-hmm. a transformation, uh, and largely, it's not just an intellectual transformation; it's a transformation of a heart. Uh, it's a transformation of what we value, uh, and this, I think, religion can provide for us it can, it can it can start to work on it And, and this is why I, I emphasize uh, repentance and lamentation is we, we can never reconstruct a new we can never kind of transform that image until we recognize the problems with that image. We need to we need to recognize that this is that, that this image of what we call affluence and success uh has dest- is destroying is destroying the world that we so value that makes such affluence and success possible right and it'll ultimately cannibalize it uh and lead to its own collapse so you know we need to we need to lament that uh and then we need to repent of that uh and Oof. recognize by that uh you know a transformation a turning uh, to something new, something that is sustainable. So I, I like to see that, you know, the only way we can address this is corporately. We can't address this individually. And, and as a member of a Christian community, I would like to see my own Christian community embrace uh, this concern that we have and to incorporate such lamentation and repentance as part of our regular religious ritual. Uh, we, we confess all kinds of things, we should confess also our environmental sins uh, and really our our sins against the world uh, as it is. Uh, make it a little bit more holistic than just environmental, but um, the, that our that our concern for affluence has as is leading us down this path that we call climate change and all that comes with that, which is a uh, which is many many kinds of of uh, environmental destructions. Um, and uh and what we start to motivate people and change people then we can build a a critical mass to where we can actually move in the political realm uh the politicians want nothing of this because they don't think the people want anything of this and it'll not lead to their reelections. elections <laughs> we need to change the people and change transform the people's thinking uh, and this is why I think right. one way of doing that
0: um so as we wrap up um, you've been working on these questions for something like 30 years yeah I think you said in, in your book and I know you're looking forward to retirement and coming up fairly soon not right now but you're working on it um what do you any concluding thoughts or any anything you bits of wisdom you'd like to leave us with
1: as complex as uh, this, you know, kind of full, and I think this is kind of a big, full statement that I give in my book. I, I still have more ways of thinking about this. So I keep thinking about new, uh, new things I want to write. So I, I, my, I'm, I'm probably going to turn to smaller, more popular uh, written pieces, uh, and partly to kind of get people on board in, in a way that, uh, you know, a, lar- a large academic book can't do. Uh, but something for the masses uh and that that uh, it, it just it inspired me to want to kind of engage more and the only way I can really engage I think is is through these ideas uh um that's that's probably where I'm gifted more than any other way and uh and then I want to go and work in my garden <laughs> I like <laughs> that to That sounds good to me. I have like a little small farm I call it. Uh, it's a very big garden uh and uh that's that's my enjoyment uh is to actually kind of be self-sustaining i grow lots and lots of food uh that pretty much uh supplies us all summer with food and i uh i can a lot and freeze a lot uh, for the winter and uh that's that's i find i find meaning and value in that and uh and also fun uh so that's kind of where I'm going to go.
0: All right, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Looking forward to the the nights getting warmer so I can put stuff
1: absolutely, out. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. We're a little warmer here, but uh we still have a little bit of risk of frost, so we have to hold off on those tomatoes and peppers for another couple of weeks.
0: All right, same here. All right, well thank you Ron. It has been a pleasure. Um so I've enjoyed this. Thank you uh, likewise. And uh, so for those of you out there who might be interested in Ron's book it is called Creation and Ecology, the Political Economy of Ancient Israel and the Environmental Crisis. Uh, so thank you very much, Ron. It's been a pleasure to have you here and always good to talk. You're welcome. You've been listening to Onscript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting Donate. Until next time, keep digging.